0: Every one of these episodes is packed, full of timeless ideas you could apply to your own life. In this conversation, I speak to Stephen Whitworth, co-founder and CEO of Incident.io. Stephen began his career at Halo, co-founded Ravlin, and joined Monzo early on. Since starting Incident with P and Chris, Stephen has gone on to raise over $34 million at the date of this recording. From notable people like Monzo's co-founders, Tom Blomfield and Jonas Tempelstein, Monzo's lead investor, Eileen Burbage, the CEO of GoCardless, Groki Takeuchi, the CTO of Loom, Vine Hayama, Instagram's co-founder, Mike Keger, and a seed in Series A led by Index Ventures. Yet yeah, our conversation touches on very little of that we explore Stephen's personal journey, how he discovered engineering, the way he approaches the ambiguity of his work, how cross-pollination between different disciplines provides him with unique insights, and how the sense of freedom engineering has given him has led him. He talks me through a model for augmenting quantitative data with our gut feel in decision-making, and Stephen talks with candor about why effective prioritization is by necessity, a painful process. What I found striking is how honest, at every turn, Stephen chooses to be, both with himself and with the truth around him. His story, though littered with notable people and huge successes, is equally approachable. It is an episode I wish I had listened to before starting my own journey, and I think you may feel the same. what benefits have you found from intentionally doing things that you're not good at
1: uh i think sort of a beginner's mind is always like the easiest way to see if just like an easy way to identify potentially dumb or ineffective things that are going on that are are only being done because that's the way that they've always been done versus actually sort of contributing to them Um, so what's what's a good example of that Um, i yeah i'm strongly to think of one like crisply but that feels like the main benefit is no uh no preconceived notions about how something should be done so you have a little bit of this first principles approach which sort of needs to be used a bit sparingly. Otherwise, you sort of end up in this place where you're, you know, like, what even is marketing, bro? Uh, it's stuff building for you're trying something to... no one wants. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Versus, um, yeah, I think, I think coming at it from, I, I think I'd maybe rephrase it to uh, taking skills that you have in other domains and seeing how they would translate to something that you don't know about. So I think a great example of that is I now run the sales team at Incident. There is a lot of like product practices that I think could be applied to like running sales teams particularly well. I think there is definitely a ton of like automation and, um, you know, the sort of sales ops side of the world greatly benefits from someone that can spray, you know, Zapier on a bunch of different problems. So... Yeah, I would say that there's a. Uh, it's usually not having a preconceived notion about doing something and then trying to like parlay everything that you were managing to do in your old old job that you're comfortable in and trying to see how you can sort of use it to uh, to get you ahead.
0: It's almost as if the the benefit is that you can take the the kind of the upsides of your specialism if if you have one and reapply them to areas that are so unfamiliar with that specialism that your presence there is new, fresh and can take it to a different level than it currently is in some ways.
1: Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I think it's, I think it's tricky cause you don't want to be the sort of, and engineers I think can particularly suffer from this, but it's like, Engineering arrogance of like, oh, sales is really easy. Why aren't? Why don't you just do X? Uh, and the folks that are already in the team that have done this for five to ten years are like, God, not another one of these. Not another one of these people trying to tell us uh, tell us how to do our jobs. So I think it's. Um, I think the most important thing to do there is sort of be be in the trenches, so to speak. Be able to slip. You know, if you're on the sales team don't sit up in an ivory tower, like managing the sales team, sling deals, like sell the thing. And then at least you have trust and credibility that you can actually do, do the job required of you and of like empathy and appreciation for, uh, for other people on your team that have maybe the specialism, and then you can try and affix some of the stuff that you've learned outside versus coming in, trying to figure out you know throw away the rule book for sales and and come back at it later but hey I mean I've been doing it for about six months or nine months at this point so it's not to say I'm like a particular expert at at doing this I've just uh you know I've just tried to try to throw myself into situations where I, I didn't know much about them and maybe that's the sort of common thread amongst all of this.
0: The ivory tower is an interesting thought because if I I reckon loads of people must think that you, not that you're in an ivory tower, but like surely you're not leading sales. Like I see you raised from index, already exciting. Like there's no way that Stephen is managing the sales team or uh, it almost looks from the outside like, oh, you must be solving like really interesting technical problems all day. And then maybe you're a CEO two days of the week versus no, actually, hey Ben, I'm, I'm running the sales team. I'm taking what I'm really good at, but I'm also applying it to things that are like completely different. Like it just doesn't sound like the typical narrative at all.
1: Yeah, I mean, um, a great example is like who pays the sales, who works out what the sales commission is and gives that to payroll. Like this guy, uh, who, is, um, who is sort of uh, the person that is, I don't know, Connecting things up, doing a bit of automation, cleaning up CRMs, like that's me. And that's not out of some sort of, I need to be one of the team style, you know, uh, like foe mentality, but more just, there is literally, there's literally no one else to do it that if we took them off, basically, I wouldn't take anyone else off the important work they were already doing to go and do something like that. And my job essentially, and we, we work in this sort of accountable exec model. So, you know, Pete, my co-founder runs product and engineering, uh, Chris, my, one of my other co-founders runs sort of growth, marketing, uh, customer success and sales is sort of my domain. And yeah, I dunno. I just feel like there's a, there's just a lot of stuff to do and not a lot of people to do it. And that's what good feels like, I think, as opposed to, um, you know, beautiful delegated processes where you're not getting in the weeds is no, nah, it just doesn't, doesn't really exist. And I was speaking to, um, you know, speaking to Carlos, uh, who's one of our investors at index. And I was thinking, I was just trying to figure out sort of the level of delegation that you can apply to, uh, you know, areas of the business over time. And in the analogy of sort of spinning plates, uh, like, is there a time at which, like, someone else spins the plates and I kind of just, you know, check in occasionally and see how it's going? Uh, and his answer was basically like, no, you know, you always <laughs> have to keep a close eye on different things. Like, the level of operational involvement sort of scales up and down, but you're probably going to be a partner to whoever's working in that area or leading it as opposed to a sort of totally delegated. So, yeah, that was sort of a long a long. Thought on the level of approach, sort of the level of involvement that I think I need to do in particular areas. And absent some, basically, nothing's going to run itself. So I'd much rather just get into the detail, uh, throw myself at the menial stuff so the other people on the team can, you know, for example, like Pierre and Reese can get on with selling stuff as opposed to like clicking the right buttons to set up our CRM
0: correctly. I can't imagine that when you were younger i mean the job title yes like great i anyone could aspire to be that perhaps but maybe not the practicalities that you just shared when you were a lot younger like how did your how did your parents influence your working journey and your choice of work
1: good question i'm sitting in uh i'm sitting in my parents house right now so i don't know if there's sort of any embarrassing photos that could be could be seen behind me but they'll uh, mm. they'll love to hear the answer to this um so I think my parents were so I was born in Singapore so I lived there until I was about seven or eight years old um and that and then my mum is Canadian my dad is from from Sheffield and sort of immediately from the start I was you know born into like a somewhat international family that had thrown themselves at you know I guess an unfamiliar situation which you know by my mum's account was not particularly enjoyable at the start and then like over time you know after they went back after six years or seven years you know my my dad sat me down and like everyone was I was crying. I didn't want to go home. My mom wanted to stay there. So I think maybe the earliest, uh, the earliest thing I learned from learned from them was, I don't know, going into unfamiliar situations, which at the start might not be particularly enjoyable, but can have much longer, or like much more enjoyable sort of payoff on the long-term and I know some some element of like grit or resilience to that i don't think it's necessarily like the same grit or resilience that you'd get say uh like going through something truly hard in your life that was not hard from a you know emotional perspective but was hard from a you know, unfamiliarity perspective so i'd say that's maybe the first thing i learned from them um and then i always remember something about my dad when i got exam results you like oh i got you know I got 87 out of 100 and then his immediate response would be like, well, what did everyone else get? Which is, you know, sort of success is a success and achievement is as, you know, you might not like it, but it's kind of uh, relative. Um, So just trying to use other people, I think, and their achievements and what they've managed to do as a little bit of like a motivating force. Um, that was always just something that came through very strongly at school. Was just sort of the push, um, the push from my dad to like look look sideways and at what other people were doing, and I guess not get complacent. But yeah, and then ultimately they're just very good, good people, kind people. I sort of would aspire to be like them, um, you know, when I eventually grow up. But we'll see. Uh, we'll see when
0: that when that happens. <laughs> it's, uh, did they? When did you first f- f- recognize that you were f- fostering an inclination? Cause it's inclinations ultimately that end up kind of manifesting in our, in our work, like we kind of tinker with something and then it might turn into engineering or we think about our relationship and it might turn into something else, like w- when were the earliest moments when you started to foster your own inclinations?
1: Yeah, I think, um, so. I didn't try, I don't think I tried particularly hard in school. So, sort of didn't, you know, didn't pay tons of attention and effort, like did okay, but then ended up going to university. Um, I think that was the point at which I was like, oh, I, I might not, I might not do great if I don't put some effort in here. This feels like a crucible moment. Um, You know, shall I apply myself? And that was maybe the first point at which I, i guess i like learned how i liked to learn versus at school it was very you will learn in this specific way which is around you know write things down and then you'll have this revision approach versus i don't know at university you can turn up to lectures you can not go to any of them you can use a laptop you can write stuff down um i think sort of that freedom was the point at which that freedom allowed me to get a bit of like the inclinations of wanting to apply myself uh, so maybe that in university and then I think I was sort of dangerously close to becoming an accountant at one point um there's no uh, no negative view on accountants or anything but more just I I think I nearly went into something because everyone else was doing it um and I yeah I, I remember how I got into sort of software engineering and data analysis and stuff was my brother prolific uh you know sort of prodigy genius level engineer uh, when he was young was always trying to get me into software engineering. I was like, yeah, this, this sounds cool. I'm up for it. Like, where do I start? And then would like immediately plop down a like, you know, beginner's guide to C++ or something, which like is actually about 450 pages or something long. So I was never like, okay, took the step to, to go into it, but I was, I was always interested. And then um, I think my, sort of girlfriend now wife went away for the weekend when i was in my final year at university and uh i was just bored so i think at some point you know at some point during the weekend i was like oh matt my brother i think we were talking about engineering so i decided to just try and give it one last try found this website called code academy uh which was amazing i think i sort of learned some Python, built a tic-tac-toe game or like a to-do list or whatever that you build in your first go. And then I think at that point I was, I was hooked because I'd now managed to connect, um, sort of, I engineering feels freeing because you can build something permission, like permissionless, permissionlessly, and then distribute it to sort of an arbitrary number of people. And, that had just not felt like the same way of something like accounting or whatever I was planning to do. And yeah, I think that was the point at which like my inclinations maybe got sort of fired up a bit. At this point,
0: once you've figured out what the inclination is, what are you truly optimizing for?
1: Yeah, good question. Um, I think I was probably, and like might still be quite a status driven person in that, I think I wanted to go into like investment banking because that's what all the smart people did. And you earned a lot of money, which like, I guess is also good, but you know, Oh, wow. If you work for Goldman, then you know, you must be the like creme de la creme. Um, So I feel like I've always been a little bit like status, uh, status motivated, even though I I don't think it's particularly healthy to be. Um, I then think that like, so that was maybe like the default path that I was going on was this like status motivated, semi-financial motivated, uh, career path. Um, I then think that I sort of moved on to tech, uh, and the way I got into tech was essentially like I built a few things for some people. Then I found this startup called halo, uh, applied. They had like a little contact us form on their website. And I think I said, Hey, like I'm a data analyst. Um, yeah, you know, can I come and do an internship or something like that? And essentially, I got an offer from Ernst and Young to join them the year after I graduated. So I was in this like purgatory period of needing to fill time. So at that point, I was like, "Oh well, you know, this tech thing. I've I've learned to build a few things. I've made a bit of money. Uh, shall we? Shall we just try it out for three months and see if it works well? Um, so that was like maybe the route into how I how I made it into tech. And I think the stuff I was optimizing for there was honestly um, novelty, fun, uh, the unknown. Because I, I'd previously like done an internship at Ernst and Young, thought it was fine, but not had my brain sort of set on fire, so to speak. Versus, you know, back in back in twenty thirteen when I did this internship, you know, Halo was a an app where you could essentially hail, hail cabs by pressing a button on your phone, which was now not particularly impressive, but, you know, back in, back in those days was, was revolutionary because this was the time sort of pre like a lot, you know, Uber was just coming up a few others and that felt like a very meaningfully, like a meaningful thing that could change cities. So I guess like I was optimizing for, you know, novelty and impact and trying to switch maybe consciously a little bit away from stuff that I might not have enjoyed, but would have given me more status. But who knows, it was a long time ago.
0: Did it take you in the direction you wanted?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I think I would have been woefully unhappy uh, sort of going and doing that career not because I think it's a bad career or it burns people out or anything like that, you know, it may do, but I i think I've spent the last eight years figuring out what I really like to do and what I don't like to do. Um, I'm pretty impatient, so I like to work quickly and at speed. I like jobs where there is high sort of marginal output for hours put in, so I need to feel like I'm having some kind of immediate impact which is then linked to speed uh and don't like to take myself too seriously so all of those things sort of i think lead me a little bit towards going to a world of like technology and startups um and away from something a little bit more corporate but hey we've hired plenty of people that have worked in those sorts of environments and loved it so it's hard to tell uh, there's sort of the self-reinforcing bias that I took the right decision. And I'm just going to say a bunch of reasons why I I feel like I took the right decision, but, um, I'm definitely happy with, uh, definitely happy with where I ended up. And I guess maybe the last thing I, I learned through it is that life is quite random. Um, you know, I started this company, you know, incident where I'm at now because I met and worked with some people closely, but if there had been a reorg or a layoff or they hadn't chosen to join, I might not have been here doing what I'm doing today. So uh, essentially like try and align directionally with where you want to go and then just accept randomness that comes along, uh, comes along the path and like embrace it. Uh, And it's, yeah, I think it's hard to have a plan.
0: If we fire through what happened from Halo, because it's really interesting. You go to Ravelin then you go to Monza and then obviously you start incident. How, how did you formulate the key decisions at the different moments there? You've got to leave Halo, where you've kind of taken this risk not to go to, to Ernst Young in the end and stayed. You're then starting Ravelin, but then you're leaving the company you started to then go to Monzo and then starting again. How have you, uh, maybe starting at the beginning, like how have you formulated those professional decisions and have you used any type of, uh, I guess like models or just ways of thinking to help you make them? Yeah,
1: I think um, I don't, it's a good way to answer. I think the, the parts of my career where I've decided to make changes have usually been to do with sort of, I guess like novelty and learning rate and it feels like, so, you know, when I was at Halo and I decided to switch was, you know, we I'm working in product teams, I'm enjoying the work I'm doing, but hey, there seems, there seems like this opportunity to attack this massive problem that I have no idea how we're going to solve. Like, have a little bit of, like, a, a direction, but wow, like, it just feels like there's, you know, just this huge thing in front of me that I want to go and solve. So, sort of immediately... I don't know, being tempted away, I guess, is like how, how I would have thought about it versus like a specific plan or wanting to go like, we're going to start a business. What are the best three problems we have? Okay, let's pick the number one. Much more like a gut instinct uh, and a vibe. Then I think from sort of Ravelin to Monzo, love love the people at Ravelin dearly and had spent you know best part sort of five years building something meaningful there. Um, the... Like the sort of parts out of Halo, a bunch of people went and started a company called Starling, which, you know, then sort of split off and became Monzo. Uh, and then a bunch of people went and started Ravelin and a few others started different companies. So there was always a bit of um, building a bank sounds like a hugely interesting challenge. Like I've, I've built, I've helped build, you know, something meaningful at Ravelin, but, you know, this also seems like a great opportunity as well. So I guess feeling like I'm not leaving anyone in the lurch and just being irresponsible and just dropping stuff and moving on. Um, I, I sort of never wanted to do that Ravelin, um, but then ending up uh, ending up sort of at Monzo because, uh, I guess because the challenge was really important and interesting, but also I knew that I probably wanted to do a company in the future as well. And, working at a much bigger company honestly is like a good way to just broaden your network and meet lots of different people that I hadn't met before. Um, and then sort of Monzo to Monzo to incident was, I think a lot of the same of, you know, Monzo Monzo taught me that I think I'm very much like a super early stage person. I really love chaos. I love ambiguity. I like, uh, like wielding a bunch of like a bunch of autonomy and power to just make you know pretty unilateral decisions to go fast on particular things and that's just not a productive thing to do in an organization of thousands of employees with many many regulations that apply to it for good reason um and i think that spending a couple of years at monzo was like a perfect way to perfect way to learn that about myself um really enjoyed my time but then I guess saw a little bit of a glimpse of the future of how this particular problem of stuff going wrong in organizations like manifested itself and I guess how it got solved in a way that I hadn't seen it done before so there was like a again like the temptation you know uh gut instinct started kicking in again of like I feel like I can potentially learn a lot more quickly if I go and start this thing so should i do it um so that was it um and yeah i don't feel like i'm going to i'm learning so much right now that i don't think i'm going to have those uh, those feelings again for quite a long time but you know i probably said that before so will uh, yeah we'll see how things go i have definitely no plans to do anything different
0: it sounds like you're throughout that whole journey having this constant conversation with yourself that doesn't seem to be stopping that's informed by your inclinations and the passions that you have and your impatience and uh, your desire for learning and but then it's also informed by i guess the different challenges that each one of the environments presents to you and it's almost like they're kind of trading gifts with each other as you go
1: yeah i I think, uh, the past year at, you know, incident has, has taught me that like, actually gut instinct is legitimate and can be very useful. And I think that that had not been something that I, I didn't know how quite, how much like weight to put on it before. Whereas I think, you know, for early stage hiring, I think for example, is a highly gut and instinct driven process, as opposed to a scientific Uh, scorecard, you know, highly, highly rigorous process. And I think that's fine. That's stuff you have to optimise for. And I think I just didn't know how much weight to apply to my gut versus advice from friends versus what the rest of the world, you know, sensible career paths in the rest of the world and stuff like that. And I think that I am sort of um, unashamedly a more gut driven person. Than i was before and i'm very happy to like listen to myself as to whether things feel comfortable or uncomfortable a potential candidate would or would not do well um you know there's obviously sort of biases and everything that you need to sort of be checking against and running this like background thread in your head for it but yeah i think that is the main difference i've i've seen over the past uh Over the past years, like if I'd gone back, I think I would be more gut-driven in more of
0: the decisions that I made. Is there anything that you've done that has enabled that to get better in some ways? Because it's so really very difficult to listen to ourselves and our gut and to have that kind of acorn of like confidence that we run with, that we allow to get bigger and bigger, but not overtake our ego. And like listening to it is just so so ridiculously difficult and it sounds like the environment's helped you get there is there also a kind of is there anything that you're doing to kind of tune that and improve your gut instinct and your ability to listen to it
1: yeah i think there's a few different things you can apply so one is the uh calibrating the amount of data that you might need to see to make any particular decision so good example would be uh, you know anything go to market related or uh, all that side of stuff you know for example if you're doing like trying to analyze your ideal customer profile based off of you know maybe 50 or 100 customers you have do you need to go and speak to every single one of those hundred customers or can you instead get a sort of directionally good guess from speaking to maybe 10 or 15 and use your gut instinct to like complement a bunch of the stuff you already know and i think it's about in that in that scenario there is always generally more data that you could get on any problem that you're trying to solve but getting more data is the expensive part and sort of trying to understand where you are on this S curve of like get more data to be more accurate but I think you can actually just use your gut to like jump up a bunch of that accurate, you know, accuracy curve if you want to. Um, So trying to, when you think about trying to improve it is just about uh, sort of knowing where it's good and where it can complement more scientific approaches. I guess the second thing you can do is just like a bit of, uh, but how good were you really? Uh, And this is the classic thing of like, um, you know, people that predicted the like, 15 of the last three recessions or whatever right is that you actually probably should be held accountable to predictions that you made in the past and assessed against like how likely you are to be correct against those and i think that's really easily doable from a hiring perspective so if you use like greenhouse or uh, lever or whatever you know were you a yes as strong yes or a no against a particular person like how how sort of aligned are your strong yeses with performance internally after it happens um are your yeses actually should be no's because in reality they just do okay but you were never really that excited about them from the start like that forms as like a useful calibration mechanism to say yeah i mean yeah you have your gut but here's some relatively objective evidence where you used your gut and you made like either a really great call or a really bad call. And I would say what we've seen is the people that were strong yeses in our hiring process like, are generally pretty well correlated with performing the strongest. Um, so I've, I've tried to use that as like a, okay, so I ha- there's like something here, but definitely not as like some kind of oracle where you think you're always right about everything. That's definitely not what I'm trying to get across here is that Stephen's gut is uh, Stephen's gut is definitely right it's more just uh, a useful complement to like other approaches to making decisions as well
0: Sounds like feedback loops too like you're taking a feedback loop that isn't currently measured that isn't quantifiable it's just in the ether and you're kind of drilling it back into your decision making in some kind of way just at least creating some kind of feedback or information that you can then use to benefit the future in some way
1: yeah absolutely i think it's um i mean it's just sensible decision making isn't it like pay attention to pay attention to information i think this is the thing that pisses me off a lot about uh political discourse is like the concept of u-turning and why that is viewed as an incredibly bad thing whereas in reality just i don't know changing your opinion when you receive new information is pretty like lo- pretty much the only logical thing you can uh, only logical thing you can do so I guess um, yeah maybe that's something else that's interesting is I've noticed in incident we are a lot more like intentional about the the sort of accuracy of the statements we're trying to make and the say like how well finished a particular proposal might be in the point at which we'll be like oh this is like 40 percent done. So I'm looking for directional feedback as opposed to, did I say this in the correct way or is this spelling wrong? And trying to be a bit more meta about uh, like, how confident am I in this assertion? Is it a gut feeling? Is it something that I would like you to go in action and do? So it's kind of like metadata about, you know, what we're saying and decisions that we are trying to be a bit more intentional about. So people can decide. So other people can react to them appropriately. And I think that's something that I haven't seen many other people do. And it's like generally a little bit more coded and you have to like back it out of impressions or expressions or any of that sort of stuff. But I like it because it means that, you know, people have more context and they can decide what to do uh, in a sort of slightly better way. And like you say, go back around this feedback loop.
0: It's like this beautiful truth. It just is the truth. It's like you're just seeking truth there's no spin it's almost as if it comes out of a data layer turns into a human layer and all of a sudden it can't exist as truth anymore but it has to it has to have some kind of left or right or yes or no onto a positive or negative whereas almost it almost feels like we're we're at a time where just taking that uh, qualitative thing and treating it as truth trying to find the truth can be your superpower rather than turning the spin on it or yeah just trying to sound confident in your assertion when perhaps actually it needs more scrutiny to you now what makes work meaningful yeah good question i think
1: the thing that makes work meaningful to me is maybe two things uh one is progress i think you know in, when you're like a GCSE student or or something, you have this careers interview where they sit you down and they're like, oh, what do you what do you want to be when you're older? And you could be like, you know, uh, a mushroom farmer or an accountant or like a theatre actor or some of this sort of stuff. And I think what I've realised is that I, I kind of don't really care the specifics of like what particular industry I work on in technology or problem as long as... I get to make rapid forward progress in solving that problem. I hate the feeling of treading water. So uh, a problem, a big problem where I am making meaningful progress, like is itself meaningful to me. And then maybe the second thing is, you know, the cheesiest answer, but uh, doesn't make it less true, which I think is the people that you get to do it alongside. Um, When we were starting Incident, we... We were honestly, like, thinking that we should maybe bootstrap it at the start. We had, you know, making a few hundred thousand dollars a year in revenue in the first few months, like, there was definitely a path to, uh, like, hey, we could just build this as a small thing and we could take it and, you know, hire a team of five and, you know, that would be it. We could, we could do what we wanted. Um, one of the key contributors to us deciding not to do that was, <laughs> yeah, but we, we know all these amazing people that we would want to hire and that would mean that we only get to hire like one of them or two of them and only at the rate at which we make revenue to pay them um which is you know not itself like a great advert for like going and starting a VC business I wouldn't say that's the only decision criteria that you should use but it was a uh, it was something I think that was particularly sort of meaningful to us was we actually have a a good network of amazing people we've worked with and it it would just feel like a, a bit of a waste if we spent maybe 5 to 10 years not being able to do it with them as well um so yeah the feeling of sort of camaraderie uh you know sharing lunch together all of that sort of stuff uh to me was like you know a meaningful part of a meaningful part of starting this and yeah i think if it all ultimately failed and I still got to spend years working with the people that I'm working with right now, you know, I I think I would still be happy at the end of it versus if we were crazy successful, but as a, just a small team of three, it would have forever felt like a bit of a missed opportunity in my mind. So I'm sure the team will hear this and, you know, roll their eyes, but uh, is that, yeah, doesn't make it less true.
0: It reminds me of the, like, hedonic treadmill where the there's an argument that the more money that we earn or uh the the kind of further up the chain that we go the the kind of more expectations that we then have of our life but in some ways it almost sounds like you've kind of like jumped up on the treadmill kind of put two feet on both sides and i like letting the treadmill kind of fall kind of beneath your feet and i recognize that it can't be perfectly that way how do you Have you experienced that kind of head-on-it treadmill where like you're just constantly, you almost feel like as you go up the layers, you're wanting kind of, you're naturally your expectations get bigger. The more skills that you get, the more progress you make. And have you figured out a way of getting out of it?
1: Uh, No, and it's really frustrating. So I remember the first stripe payments that we received for incident i was sat in this room so it was during lockdown uh and yeah i think you know we built we'd integrated stripe in like i don't know a day or something because we needed to make start making some money and at that point i was like oh my god like someone's paying us 150 pounds a month for our products and oh wow like 750 pounds a month that's amazing and like i'm not being sarcastic i was genuinely so happy that this had happened and now if now i wake up to an email notification where someone is paying us 500 bucks a month and i'm like that's that's pretty cool but like you know i then go up and like i make my coffee and i you know go for a walk or, or whatever else i do and i don't know if that that sort of feeling has been dulled a bit which is frustrating because every at the stage of company where every customer still is an achievement we can know most people by first name um and i just think it's i just think it's raw human nature to be uh acclimatize yourself to whatever's going on and be less and less sort of impressed by the same achievements over time i don't really know how to i don't really know how to change it that well i think one thing that we try and do at the company is um So we have a gratitude channel, which sounds sort of very LA and, you know, uh, sort of, I I guess, you know, doesn't doesn't sort of fit particularly like English humble self-deprecating model very well, but we try and use it to celebrate, I guess, wins that people have had, things that we would like to thank other people in the company for. And I guess trying to hold up, trying to hold up parts of, the organisation and show light to maybe, you know, an achievement does not need to be like signing a million dollar deal or, uh, you know, launching a particular country or something like that. It can be a great example is like we held held a sales event in our office last night and it was the first one we'd ever done. And four people helped us make that happen. And that's really great. And we should celebrate that uh, as a like legitimate achievement. And sort of hold them up for it. So, yeah, I think sort of appreciating that I don't think at a chemical level, it's very easy for us to uh, get off the treadmill. but But then you can just still hold up small stuff and medium stuff and make a big deal out of it. And hopefully that's some way of like the novelty of everyone's individual achievements and the newness of it stops you from being like bored or dulled against the you know the stuff that you're a a bit more used to but i think in short no it sucks i would like to be i would like to be a more appreciative person but i think my body's
0: fighting against it it sounds a lot like expectations and there are so many expectations that are set of a ceo and especially a ceo who's running a VC-backed startup because the odds are firmly against you and and not in your favor. Um, reminds me of kind of like the the salmon going up the stream and like only only one of them making it. And like there are just these systems in nature that mean that uh, the VC is doing something nothing wrong. There it is exactly what they should do. But it is just the truth that power law means that only one uh, or a small number will make it. How do you how do you maintain your own self and your own kind of work satisfaction and your own expectations, knowing that there's that's kind of, that you're, you're part of that and that you're, you it might, it might not be you who makes it. Yeah,
1: I, we've thought about this a lot and we, we like to hire what we call sort of pragmatic optimists. And that the, the default outcome is that this all probably goes to zero or trundles along and doesn't really make any money. Um, but if we truly thought that we were one of those people, well, why even bother? Like, let's just all go get some jobs at Google and, you know, we'll all be happy and sort of and very well off in 25 years. Um, so I guess like a bit sort of obstinateness that, well, you know, we're not going to be one of those and it is within our power and our control to make small changes every day that mean that we aren't going to be one of those companies that, you know, goes to zero. Um, optimism is definitely something we explicitly hire for. Like, do you think that there is good in the world? Do you think that, do you see the bad in everything that you do? you know, the bad in every mistake, or do you view it as a bit of a chance to, like, learn and improve? So, surrounding myself with other optimists, I think, I think I maybe started off my career being quite pessimistic and negative, and honestly, I think English and British culture doesn't, doesn't help you with that. It's not helpful. Um, Yeah, absolutely, versus, I don't know, you spend some time in America, and it's just, it, it just genuinely is a bit different, and I changed my I changed my viewpoint on this many years ago before I started spending more time in the States. But it's refreshing to see that there are you know literally countries full of people that think slightly differently in that way. Um, and then, yeah, I guess sort of expectations management, the personal side of stuff. Um, I think being a CEO or a founder or an exec at any early stage company is essentially being at the end of a treadmill of an infinite amount of generally pretty valuable or highly leveraged work like you because of what you're doing in your role like you just are going to be able to accelerate a lot of things and you're generally not working on super menial things so it would be should i go and try uh, and close this or like find a bunch of candidates for this vp role or should i fly and go and see our biggest customer and spend a few days with them should i uh take this project team that's slightly struggling a bit and get in the weeds and help them. Yeah, all sounds great. Like, why don't we just do all of it? Uh, Well, answer is you can't. So I think accepting that there is some point at which you have to draw a line under like the amount of work that you're simply just able to do. And I think prioritization is the ultimate skill to learn in a post-product market fit company. You know, you will, you will always have, more things than you could possibly do with the people that you have or could hire and just being ruthless with focus and prioritization is the goal. It's very hard to do in practice. Um, my colleague Esther says like good prioritization is not finding two bad things, eight good things, and then doing the eight good things. It's, you know, the two bad things, the eight good things, and then doing two or, two or three of the good things. Like it should hurt, it should be actively painful. Um, and I think about that quote a lot when I'm trying to figure out which person to disappoint or which thing to slow down or which thing to consciously ignore for two weeks um, because you just can't, you genuinely genu- <laughs> just can't do it all. So uh, it's got to hurt. And then... I guess maybe stress. I think is the last, last thing that is uh, is something I think about a lot, which is just trying. I've tried to become more aware of what stresses me out, and it's just weird small things, like lots and lots of back to back meetings, or having a big thing on my mind, which I know is the most important thing for the company, which is not reflected in my calendar as the most important thing or the amount of time I'm spending on it. And it's like, I think I've drilled it down to the tension between my priorities and like observed priorities. If those are too far out of whack, then I start to get quite stressed out quite quickly. And I don't know, just trying to be, uh, trying to be a bit meta about it. You know, there's this concept of, we think about it when hiring of like, you know, people that, people that do work and sort of will do tasks and will do them perfectly well. But then like a layer of people that think about the work that they do, how they do it, how much time to spend the speed versus accuracy trade off that you would apply to it, the sequence to do it in the sort of more like meta aspects about work itself and trying to think, trying to think in that mode when it comes to the work that I do and. How I structure my day I think is is the thing that is the biggest uh, I don't know the biggest positive impact on my ability to like get my job done is just be a bit more um bit more conscious a bit more meta okay, time is finite everyone's dying slowly and all that so you just uh, spend your time on the right stuff and be conscious about it versus don't just do tasks because there's an infinite stream of tasks coming so you better you better pick the right ones
0: understanding stress is, is so challenging as um Dostoevsky says um I have the quote in front of me the most terrible punishment for any human being would be if they were condemned to a lifetime of work that was devoid of usefulness and meaning and in those moments of stress you you are at the pit of usefulness <laughs> usefulness and, and meaning it when when has that quote resonated most deeply with you I think
1: that uh, one of the things we ask in our interview process is sort of the concept of hard work and like, when have you worked the hardest and what would make, you know, why did you do that? And what were the triggers that would make you want to work that hard again? And the first thing that candidates immediately associate hard work with is long hours. I I just don't think that is always the case or necessarily the case. And I think if you apply that to burnout, everyone goes, oh, well, you know, it's working super hard and very, very burnt out. I think it's actually pretty weakly correlated in my experience with burnout. I think burnout is much more attributable to like what you say in the Dostoevsky quote of just I'm I'm on an infinite hamster wheel and like none of the stuff I'm doing is going anywhere. Um, I don't know if there's like a particular particular time where that applied the most um i think i think in general it's when i've when i've been working on when i've been working on stuff that i know i'm not good at and have no interest in becoming any better at and and it's not impactful anyway versus stuff that i'm not good at i actively want to get better at and getting better at this thing is the most impact important thing that could happen for this company. And I think, you know, incident is maybe like the, the positive aspect of that, which is, you know, taking, say, learning to sell the product. I'd never sold something before joining this company. I sold maybe the first 60 or 70 deals because there was an impetus for me to get better at it and, you know, high marginal output for hours spent in um, versus I think, you know, some of past experiences at jobs where, it, it, it honestly just wasn't that important because, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't CEO, right? Like, it's just, I'm, I'm not blaming those companies. It's just, uh, structurally, I think less, uh, less aligned with what I was good at and what I wanted to be good at.
0: And finally, how would you describe your own personal relationship with work now?
1: I'd say, harmonious in places and evolving in others. So I think a good example is I like work to be more fluid and intertwined with my personal life than I think most people are comfortable with. I think that Saturday morning is an excellent time to get some work done personally, because I'm fresh from like a nice long sleep. I have no, I have nothing on my schedule and there is no one else around. And if I want to do things which are, which require unbounded amounts of time to think about and do, like where should we, you know, how do we, imp- what are the key weaknesses in our go-to-market motions or like what does the next six months of product look like? That stuff is really, really hard to squidge into 30 minutes between, you know, a lunch and uh, like a review meeting so i think saturday is like a lovely time to do some of that stuff uh so i try and i try and do that my wife thankfully is you know amazing and and totally fine with that i think what the like complement of that can be is you know and like me and my co-founder chris have we have this thing in the calendar called the lunchtime running club And it's currently being renamed to the aspirational lunchtime running club, Hmm. because, uh, we've, we've had it in there and no, one's gone for a run at any of those times. And I think maybe the complement to the intertwined nature of like the Saturday working is like, cool, but you know, is there a way that work can be less, a little bit less structured in places and you can get those times in for, you know, just going for a run and spending more time with people. Um, so I think that's the sort of harmonious side of stuff, evolving. Um, my, I've essentially gone from a job where I knew pretty well what I was doing and was evolving, evolving skills in a specialist path. To my job now is to be thrown into a new situation. You know, between sort of every three and six months, that I have never done before, rapidly learn to get good at doing it and then try and find amazing people that can do it, assess them, coach them, partner with them and get them going and like repeat. That's, uh, that's the evolving part of it. In that, you know, if you're going to be even more meta about it is I I have very little experience at doing this thing that involves me having little experience. (laughs) So trying to, uh, trying to sort of, um, you know, get good at learning and learn more quickly I think is what I'm trying to trying to work on. Um, So yeah, evolving, but uh, overall happy. Yeah, no no, fundamental like complaints or anything like that. Still definitely enjoying things. Um, Just uh, have never done this aspect of the journey before from like a leadership perspective and a role perspective. So everything is new. So, you know, there's probably some like seasoned vets out there that are, you know, looking at me and saying, oh, you know, zero to a hundred people is the really fun bit. And then wait, then you wait until the, uh, until the hell starts. Um, I'm, I'm thankfully sort of ignorance, ignorance is bliss. And I will, uh, I will operate in that, in that mode, uh, sort of on the work side of stuff. Um, cause I think just, I don't know, being optimist, being an optimist, being pragmatic and sort of enjoying the novelty is is what i've always
0: liked to do so i don't want to spoil it too early Mm. from um halo ravelin monzo now incident, i'm really grateful we've had the time and i've loved your honesty and clarity and uh optimism and thank you
1: yeah i appreciate that man this is a very uh know i think my parents will love to listen to certain aspects of of this and um yeah it's nice to uh nice to reflect and think a little bit more about you know how you do work your relationship with it as opposed to just blindly blindly doing the work so um appreciate the invite and uh thank you very much
0: the best work podcast is produced by the team at cord I'd love your advice on how we can make sure the Best Work podcast is having a profound impact on the way we all pursue our best work. Email me at benatcord.co. You can also find a transcript of this conversation, insightful video content, and more at cord.co slash insights. Thanks for listening.